Welcome to Dismantle Racism, where our goal is to uncover, dismantle, and to eradicate racism, and to create a world where racial equity is the norm. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. Today, we are going to be talking about unraveling racism, the journey of spiritual awakening. But we want to begin the show, as always, by finding our breath and taking a moment just to center ourselves. So I invite you, if you would, to just sit back. If you're not driving, just to sit back, close your eyes, and to tune in to that which gives you life. Take a moment to connect with divine wisdom and your sacred intelligence, which is that divine part of you that helps you to manifest intelligent choices. Breathe in the knowledge that these choices also manifest your greatness while helping others to manifest their greatness. As you breathe in and out, remind yourself that you are loved and that you are love itself. Breathe in and out the knowledge that you are a part of a shared humanity and carry within you the power to heal and to be a part of changing the status quo. Breathe in and out. Acknowledging the power of one contributes to the power of community. Now take a deep breath in and sigh it out. And let's begin our discussion of unraveling racism. And taking a look at this journey of unraveling racism as it relates to our spiritual awakening and so much more. Self-reflection is a beautiful, difficult, and sometimes painful journey that can lead to freedom, significant growth, and harmonious relationships with others. The end result of this process not only is it creating those relationships that where we can live in harmony, but we can have powerful and a profound impacts on the ways in which we develop our higher level of consciousness and experience our higher level of consciousness. So really, the work of dismantling racism is spiritual in nature. So we're going to talk today with my guest, Hilary Larson, who's going to share a bit about her spiritual awakening and how it has helped her to unravel racism and her work that she's done in her literacy program. She will share her discovery of her family history and how it really relates to or related to um, displacing people of color from their homes. And she's going to talk a little bit about that story and what that means to her and how she still continues the work of dismantling racism and not live in that space of shame around what her ancestors may or may not have done. So Hillary Larson started her career producing nationally syndicated radio shows in New York City. And later through a series of unexpected events, she founded a literacy program for kids. As someone who had been deeply troubled by racism since she was very young, she also knew that as a white woman, she was very much removed from its direct impact. So she's currently involved, though, in decolonizing philanthropy and redefining wealth. So we'll hear a little bit more about that as well. She also produces a weekly newsletter called The Friday Cohort, that examines the history of racism. Hillary Larson, welcome to the show. Oh, so good to be here. Hillary, let's get right down to it. I'm going to start as I always do by asking you what grounds you in this work. I know that you're passionate about doing this work, but what is it that keeps you going? Do you have a practice that you lean on or some guiding principles from your higher level of consciousness that says, this is a work that I have to do? 
Well, I mean, two things. Um, one is, as you mentioned, you know, for whatever reason, I was born as a white person that had a particular attention on racism, even when I was a little kid. So where that came from, I'm not exactly sure. And how it evolved over time is, is still a mystery to me as well, uh, including the times I've been completely asleep and times I have been wanting to be fully awake. Um, but my spiritual practice is an interesting one. Um, I got clean 35 and a half years ago from a horrible drug addiction uh, and alcoholism. And I people would talk about, you know, I was in 12-step program, to, like turn it over, turn you know, just turn it over. Oh, well, I've had a craving today. Well, turn it over. And, I, and as to God, as in that context, and I was like, how, like, how do you turn it over? I mean, I grew up Episcopalian, but I still, that was, that was an abstract for me. So my spiritual practice was the willingness to tell the truth. Mm. That was my spiritual practice. And my mantra is, uh, was basically, you know, what is your motive? Mm. That was my spiritual practice. That was my ongoing question is what, what is your motive? Because I had to question everything I did because my mind was, was, you know, easily taking me down a bad road. So that was one thing. But the other thing that really kind of took me to a way deeper level was, a, I think it was 12 years ago where I met my spiritual teacher. And what she imparted to me was just this, uh, impeccable ability to be uncomfortable the willingness to open to what society tells us not to open to Mm. the opposite of like be happy be put together like don't be afraid and it was like be be sad feel Mm. shame Mm. yeah so I, I, there are two things I, I, I want to pick up on that. And one is I love the fact that you asked the question, what is my motive? Because in my upcoming book, that's one of the things that I talk about is that understand what your motive is for doing this work. Because often people want to do it because it's the, the latest trend or the hot topic. But this yeah. work of dismantling racism is long term. It isn't something that we do for for 30 days or even for a year and decide that we're done with it. I mean, some of us think that we are done with it and we'll say, I don't want to address that issue today, but actually it needs to become a part of our lived experience. And so I wonder for you, you mentioned to be uncomfortable. What in your spiritual awakening allowed you to be uncomfortable with this conversation around race and where you really take a look at what's happening in the world and say, I have to do something about this? Well, it's a great question. Um, So the work I did with my literacy center, I was uncomfortable much of the time. I was inspired much of the time, but I also, also was so uncomfortable with what I was witnessing that I that as as you said in the intro was as a white person, I can come and go from that space. I have that choice, uh, and I was very aware of being across town, you know, being in situations that were really difficult, seeing people that were really oppressed in terrible ways, and then going back across the river. Mm. But I was familiar. I wasn't like, oh, what's this? You know, and I also had that piece of me that I was born with that was like wanted to lean into it. Um, so, so there was that. And then I think in my own spiritual journey, I had uh, was in a horrible car accident when I was 18 and I broke many bones and I had to learn how to walk again or gain my ability to walk again. And in that, I, develop, I started developing this really overwhelming anxiety terrible anxiety, debilitating anxiety. And so I went on a spiritual search and I was led by that. And, and the kind of the, the uh, end of the story of my, um, or the moral of the story of this, of my anxiety was that my journey took me out to, to get rid of it, to make it go away. If my, my life would be okay if this mm-hmm. anxiety was gone. Mm-hmm. And I did, I did, oh, I can't even, I could spend an hour telling you all the things that I did. 
And when I met my teacher, Gongaji, 12 years ago, she was saying, wonder if you don't fix a thing. Just for a moment, don't fix a thing. And so nobody had really said that to me, or I hadn't heard them say that to me. I hadn't taken it in in that way. And that's when I, I, I just, I just, I reached this place where I was so exhausted that I was just willing, willing to feel and be Mm. myself. And, Mm. and so that carries over into very much so in, into my inquiry, into my own racism is just the willingness to stop Mm. and go, wow. (laughs) So, so I so appreciate that because what you're really saying is one, we have to feel and, and not pretend like a thing isn't there. We have to, we have to really be in that moment and we can look around and we say, racism is there. And in your particular case, I live in this neighborhood, but this is what I see in the work that I do. And I have to be able to feel because I have to be able to have compassion for the people that I provide a service to, because sometimes, sometimes it seems like people are just doing a job that, that they're coming in being the savior, so to speak, but they aren't really feeling the compassion of a savior. And and so some of that stuff can come out. And I love that you're saying, I had to take a step back and look at my own racism. That's a tough thing for many white people to do. I will say that based on the experience that I have in, in the coaching that I do, in the courses that I teach, a lot of times white people are afraid to say, yes, I have some racism because it's inherent. It's not that we're trying to be racist, but we all live in a system where we're repeatedly um, perpetuating racism. And there's some ways, actually, we're going to talk about this when we come back from the break. There's some ways that both you and I actually perpetuated uh, racism as it relates to what we're going to talk about a little bit on the show today. So I really want to get into that discussion when we come back, because the the whole point of this is taking a look at ourselves and seeing how do we transform ourselves in order to go out into the world. So I love that that you are self-reflective in the work that you do. And I love that your spiritual teacher uh, helps to ground you in this work. So we're going to take a really quick break and we're going to be right back with Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. My guest today is Hillary Larson. We'll be right back. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy. And I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.
We are back with Dismantle Racism. My guest today is Hillary Larson. Hillary, before the break, I mentioned that that there was something that uh, I think both of us (laughs) did that really shows that we still have some growing to do in this work on dismantling racism. And I'm so deeply grateful for the young people who are coming along, you know, after us who continue to push us to do better and continue to show us ways in which we are perpetuating systems unknowingly. So I want to invite us into a conversation even around uh, the language that we use in describing the show. So when I read your bio, I purposely left out the words gang kids, because in your bio, you say that you founded a literary center for gang kids. And then I actually use that when I wrote the summary for what the show would be about. I used the term gang kids and didn't think anything about it. And of course, I have a young person on my staff who calls, uh, well, actually, she, she didn't necessarily call me out on it because she didn't see the summary, but she saw the bio. And she said, what is this? What does it mean to say gang kids? And do we make the assumption that just because they're kids of color, that all kids of color are gang kids? And she said a few other things. I can't really remember all of what she said, but, but what she did was she woke me up to this language. And, uh, and also it makes a difference that you as a white woman, I think, was you, you know, you were using the term gang kids. But what I thought about is the fact that um, we use language that's okay in one era and it's not okay in another era. And we always have to be conscious of it. But talk to me about this use of gang kids, what it means for you and why you chose to use it in your bio. Yeah, I mean, I love that your staff member uh, called us out on that, called me out on that, because I do think it's a dated term. And I had, it's not that I hadn't thought about it, because when I was writing up my bio, I was kind of like, huh, like that doesn't, I felt like a bump there, like, hmm, it seems A, like a dated term, but B, it seems like uh, it has the potential for creating a generality. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but, you know, this was the 90s and the Crips and the Bloods had come to town and it was like such a huge story here in Portland where I live. And uh, gang kids was the term that was tossed around all the time. In fact, um, one of my very, very closest friends who I met at the time was at the core of uh, working with uh, gang kids. So the gang task force, I mean, right, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really interesting, Hillary, because because there are a couple of things that come from this is that, again, we do often use language that was socially acceptable at that time. But here's one thing that I want to just caution all of us. Even as you were writing your bio, it felt like a bump. And then you went to what you knew as opposed to challenging yourself, because I understand it gets daunting sometimes to try to think about how do I reword this? What do I say? But there's always that space for us to continue to grow. And so what I would offer for us is that when we're in that place with, for what I call sacred intelligence, where we're tapping in to that divine wisdom is to pay attention to the bumps. So to pay attention to when it didn't feel good um, and also to do what you and I are doing, which is to have an open dialogue about the phrases that we use. I'm challenged all the time when my kids call me out on, may not be dealing with race, it could be with some other group per se, and I use a term and they're like, mom, you just, you just can't say that. And I would say, but it means blah, blah, blah. They're like, no, it does not mean that. And, um, and so I appreciate the opportunity to have that dialogue about this to challenge ourselves to do better and, and to be better. So, so we're going to be looking for, for changes in your bio, but also just even in myself, just reflecting on it, because like you, I've actually worked with a lot of kids who have had some gang affiliation. And so it's easy to fall into those terms of where we say 
gang kids. So my question for you is, were all of the kids that you worked with gang kids or was it just, it was, was it a combination of kids who came from a certain neighborhood and then that's how they were characterized? Yeah, they initially, it was uh, kids in a specific program for gang kids. But what happened was everybody started showing up. You know, we had kids that were actually technically too young for our program. And we had, we started having all these adults show up. Um, And so we had a whole range, but I will tell you that at that time that the the kids that were like in the gang programs that were we were meant to serve initially, the thing that was heartbreaking about it was that they had felt so betrayed by the education system and, and the system in general around them that they just felt like, what's the point of that? Mm-hmm. So I might have some kid that was technically in the 11th grade and his reading level was second year, third month. Of, of grade school. So it's like, um, so the betrayal I saw immediately and how to rectify that betrayal. Oh my gosh, that's a whole story within itself. Mm. You know, I, I really, again, I can appreciate that conversation as well, because I've seen that so many times, even when I worked in the school system or when a juvenile delinquent facility, I worked there, I would see kids who were just passed along all the time who, had difficulties in school, not just with reading, but with math and and all the other uh, courses as well that they took. And so it is heartbreaking. And I get that and understand it. So I really, um, you know, applaud the work that you were doing in order to increase um, the literacy of kids who were members of gangs and beyond, because that's the other way that we can phrase it, if we were to say uh, kids who were in gangs as opposed to gang kids, because we're already characterizing them and we're not seeing them as people. When we put that gang in front of it, um, we we were putting the gang first. And so uh, I think that's a lesson for, for both of us, just in terms of identifying the person first and then uh, the characteristic of it, but also Hillary, you told me an amazing story just in general with how you got involved in wanting to do that in the first place. Because if my understanding is, is that you did this for eight years. And I know that the work was um, often difficult to do. So tell us how you got into wanting to teach kids in the first place to uh, to read. Yeah, the truth is I didn't. <laughs> Like I had zero desire to do that. As I said, my background was in radio. You know, I, the last person I would pick would be to to be a tutor for kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just like, it's not in my realm of expertise. Um, And right after the LA riots, I went down to LA and I was invited to this gospel event and I was just innocently going to a gospel event. And When I got there, I discovered that it was also a fundraiser for this literacy center in South Central that a Baptist minister had started uh, after the L.A. riots because he he realized that the problem for him, the problem was literacy, that kids were not getting taught uh, to really understand the world around them. And so he he started this literacy center. I so somewhere in the middle of the concert, they played this video and. You know, it was not like a a real professional video. And they had these interviews with mostly white tutors. And then these black kids would come in and out and talk about, you know, what they were learning or whatever. And there was this moment where this this kid that in my mind was a gang kid, and he actually had come out of a gang. um, He said something about hating white people and that that now he would lay down his life for them white people is exactly what he said. And he, this tear started coming down his face and he turned away really quick. And it was like, I was, it, it, I was demolished. (laughs) There was, I was, I was hijacked. I was captured uh, in an instant. And in the instant was about this possibility of equality, this 
possibility of peace and love between human beings and not in a naive way of just like, there Mm. it was. And so I walked up to that Baptist minister after, after that event. And I said, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. And I had no idea that I actually would be going home Mm. and I'd be looking around for a space to start a literacy center. And that's what I did. And I couldn't have been more <laughs> surprised. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'd be like, I work in radio. <laughs> but, but that's, but that's the, so that's also the power of when you wake up and you say you want to be involved. Now, not everybody out here is going to go and start a literacy center, but, but as you were talking and you said, I innocently went to a Baptist show. All I could think about was, yes, but something greater than you, this higher power had another plan for you. So you thought you were going to a gospel show and you really came out with this, this knowledge of, wait a minute, I have to do something about this. And you decided to do something about it. And, and this is the thing you didn't go and just say, I'm going to this gospel concert. You, I mean, that was your intent, but when you were awakened, you decided to do something about it. And as we're talking on this show today, it's all about waking up. And again, there was a spiritual awakening as well, because you use the language of basically, basically love and wanting to help everybody. And if we truly want to do that, then we would take a look at the black and brown faces that are around us that are treated very differently. You know, if, if, and when I say we, in this particular case, I mean, white folks will open up to that and say, I have to do something about this. But even for people of color who have become complacent or who have become just bone tired and don't want to do anything else, there are times we have to say, I have to keep at this for the good of all, because I'm sure that there are wonderful stories that came out of the work that you've done Mm. at the center. Mm. Incredible, incredible Mm -hmm. stories. Can I share one? Yes, please do. Um, There was one man who came in, he was 65 years old. And when we did the interview and part of what we would do in our interviews was we would remove labels from, from people So uh, what have you been told in school? Oh, I've been told I have ADD or I'm slow or blah, blah, blah. And it's like we would, in the interview, that main purpose of it was to remove those labels, to say, we don't do that here. You just see people's shoulders. What? Like you don't label people here? Yeah, we don't do that here. So James had uh, grown up in Mississippi. When he came to us, he was 65 years old and he barely knew the alphabet. Uh, so we, we started him literally with the alphabet, the little pieces of paper, A, B, C, D. How do you pronounce, how do you sound those out? We moved on to, to books for kids and he, and he showed up like he was the first one to show up when we would be, when, every time we were open, he was there. And so one day I asked him after he'd been there for a couple of years, I said, so James, like, I noticed when we did our interview with you, you said, you graduated from the eighth grade. So how, how would you not know, you know, how to just read basic things? And he said, well, he grew up in Mississippi. There was a federal mandate that uh, all, all kids should be uh, educated equally. And so he would go to school. The black kids would go to school with the white kids. The teacher would, would take role and then they would send the black kids out to do chores. So they didn't actually get an education. Uh, and I, you know, it, it just blows my mind. It, like it just blows my mind that happens to human beings. And so, at one point, after he'd been with us for three or four years, his he and his tutor come bounding into my office, and they look like the cat had eaten the canary. And I'm like, "What are you two up to?" And and she said, uh, "James has something to show you." And she, and he puts this envelope in front of me, and I'm like, "What is that, James?" And he said. It's the first letter I've ever written to my son. So it was story after story after story. Mm, mm, That is so beautiful. Yeah. That is so beautiful. 
We do have to take a quick break. There was so much that you, that you said in that that story. Thank you for sharing with sharing it with us. And then it also again continues to uncover the racism that existed and still exists in this country. But it also shows the power of love and the power of waking up and deciding that we are going to dismantle racism. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Howdy. I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. are back with our show today. My guest today is Hillary Larson, who has been talking with us about the ways in which she's unraveled uh, racism through her spiritual awakening and so much more. We've talked about your literacy program, but Hillary, one of the things that I want to talk with you about now, it seems like you're always uncovering information um, about yourself and you're always ways, examining ways in which you can seek to dismantle racism as well. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that you've discovered about your family history and how you continue to move to dismantle racism, despite what you have found out, and maybe because of what you have found out. So I'd love for you to tell us about the story of your grandfather. Yeah, and I think this story of my grandfather, if I could just uh, go back a little further than um, what I'm doing right now. Um, Right after the murder of George Floyd, of course, there was this huge awakening. Um, And maybe it was bigger than, you know, post, like when the riots of 1992 happened with Rodney King, that was huge. But there's a certain phenomenon that happens is there's something huge and then there's a going to sleep again um, by people that can go to sleep again, uh, such as myself. And so when George Floyd happened, you know, it had been years since I had um, been running my literacy center. And so I was very much what I would consider to be in a white spiritual bubble. And I don't think that's necessarily a negative thing. That was this place that was safe and it was a a place for me to actually develop the courage to open to just being myself and the fear and the, and the, <clears throat> the shame, you know, all the emotions that, you know, I was running from. <clears throat> and, and that allowed me, that was a springboard for me to allow, to like look beyond that. So <clears throat> the spiritual, the, sp- the spiritual life is an important life, but I, it, but it's it if it doesn't go beyond that for me it was limited 
Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so after George Floyd, I knew that. I knew that propensity and that likelihood of falling asleep again. So I invited people to, to join me on Zoom and watch a documentary for uh, this one week. We watched 13th together, which I highly recommend. I think everybody should watch that movie by Ava DuVernay. Um, then the next week, I Am Not Your Negro. Um, we just continued on and on every, every week. And, <clears throat> and after three or four months, when it was, it was kind of the conversation was dying down in general, and we were on to other things, you know, elections and conspiracy theories and, you know, um, pandemic, um, I, uh, we kept going because that's, that was the reason for it is like, I don't want to go back to sleep again. And Mm -hmm. in doing that, what's required is really a meditation where you sit on your meditation pillow. And sometimes you're like, Oh, I'm going to sit on my, I want to, I'm going to sit on my meditation pillow. And other times it's like, Oh, I don't want to sit on my meditation pillow. I want to go do something else. Mm -hmm. And so that was the purpose of it. We call it the Friday cohort because it was started on a Friday and it was in the middle of the pandemic, so there weren't a lot of things to do anyway. And this was this required our full attention. And then what was beautiful about it is that we didn't move. When life started changing and opening up, things started opening up, we consciously made a decision to not move it from Friday because mm-hmm. that would be the thing to do. Let's move it to a better day where people have, you know, I don't want to go out on Friday nights. Like, no, that's our meditation pillow is on Friday night. Mm-hmm. So that was that. And so that then opened me uh, to deeper conversations with just, you know, the most remarkable people I have in my life, um, teaching me more about colonization, uh, but then really looking at, well, how does that operate in philanthropy, for example, because that's something that I'm really interested in. And and I I did really deep journeys about my own ancestry and I didn't have ancestors that came from the South, as far as I know. They came across the Oregon Trail, and um, they landed on in, in what I'm presuming is indigenous land. Um, so there was that. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was watching a YouTube in the midst of really just wanting to take in as much as I could. And it was, you know, the question was, why are there so few black people in Oregon? (laughs) And I was listening to this scholar explain, you know, the history of racism in in Oregon is that we were the white oasis. It was like, you come here if you want all (laughs) white people and you don't have to deal with slavery. Um, It wasn't a good thing. It wasn't a moral thing as I had always thought. you know, being in a nice liberal state. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, as she was talking, they started talking about, you know, in the late 1950s, uh, Eisenhower, like he um, uh, allocated huge amounts of money to, you know, redo the infrastructure like we're doing right now. And it cut through all these black neighborhoods. And I didn't know that at the time. I wasn't even born at the time. I was born in 1962. And and I'm sitting there like knowing exactly where, where that went through in Portland. And, and I was thinking, wow, like, what are the dates of that? Because my grandfather was really active on the highway commission. And I think he was just coming in or r- right after those decisions were made, but I still have to kind of dig in to find out, well, God, what were the conversations that took place? Because my go- grandfather was known as this, a man that really stood up for everybody. Mm-hmm. And he, for example, belonged to a club where a, a, a Jewish lawyer wanted to join the club and, and they said, no, you can't join the club. And my grandfather said, great, then I'm quitting. <laughs> if he can't join, I'm leaving. And mm-hmm. so they changed the rules because of him. But, but this, like that threw me, that threw me off. I'm in the mm-hmm. middle of the inquiry around that, frankly. Mm. Well, I, I, I want you to keep us abreast of what you find, because there's so much that you said in that. Uh, I mean, my goodness, Hillary, just uh, the fact that one, the, the highway just decided they decided probably eminent domain. We're going to go through and we're going to take the land of black people. And this 
is why it's so important to tell history. Because one of the things that you said is that you had this story in your head of, you know, Portland, Oregon is just where white people decide to come. But no, there were black people here, but then they were displaced. And where did those black people go once they were displaced? And even if they stayed in Oregon, how are they living now as opposed to how they might have lived had they stayed in the areas where they were living, which we're probably doing um, well, I don't know financially how they were doing, but I know that there are many black towns that were in place that were doing extremely well until whites came in and either gentrified or just took the land. And so I think that that's worthy of you continuing to explore. And what I um, value about what you have been saying through this show is that Hillary you take a piece of information and then you uncover it. You keep uncovering it and figuring out what to do. So it's a part of your spiritual awakening. It's a part of being a journalist too, I think, is that you want to know more. And what I want to offer to our guest is that don't stop. Don't stop at like, oh, this was an interesting thing that I heard today. Or did you know this about Black people and blah, 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 blah. No, what do we do about it? When you know better, you do better. And I think that that's the story that you have shared with us. And so you'll continue to uncover that as opposed to living in this shameful place, which sometimes people do and say, oh, no, my um, grandfather must have been involved in this. And, you know, that wasn't me. I don't have anything to do with it. But you're saying, no, I want to know more. Because I think the other thing that happens is knowing more and knowing whether you're grandfather was the type of person to stand up for people of color helps to give you strength to go to the next place. But, you know, I would be remiss if I did not um, just say, I wonder, I'm glad that your grandfather stood up for a Jewish man, but I wonder would he have stood up for a black or a brown person? And there's no way of us knowing that. But what I find is people are much more comfortable standing up for folks who have a fairer skin mm-hmm. than they do for the people with a darker hue. But again, we have no way of knowing that. So uh, continue to keep digging and maybe we'll learn a little bit more about that. The other thing that I want to say before we have to go to break really quickly is that You mentioned that you do this work, your Friday cohort, where you are continuing to have the conversations about race. And you made a conscious decision that you were not going to change the date. And a part of the reason why you weren't going to change the date, I know from the conversation that we had beforehand, is that you wanted folks to be committed to doing this work. And it would have been easy to say, oh, no, Friday night, we want to go out and do something else. But you're like, no, we have to stay in this and we have to be uncomfortable, just like Black and brown people don't get to choose whether they're going to experience racism on a daily basis. This is one thing we can do is to stay committed to the work that we've started. So Hillary, we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to hear a little bit more about what it means to decolonize philanthropy. So we will be right back with Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. My guest today is Hillary Larson. We'll be back. Join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern for the Mind Behind Leadership, where we focus on what leadership really means to us and to others. We have practical discussions with the CEOs of some of the world's largest companies, owners of small businesses, and experts in psychology and behavior to get that inside track, what to do, what to avoid, and what really happens. Join me, Graham Dobbin, at the new time, 4 p.m. every Tuesday for the Mind Behind Leadership, here live on talkradio.nyc. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. 
Calling all pet lovers. Pet Avengers, assemble! On the Professionals and Animal Lovers show, we believe the bond between animal lovers is incredibly strong. It mirrors that bond between pets and their owners. Through this program, we come together to learn, educate, and advocate. Join us live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. are back with Dismantle Racism. Hillary, before the break, you mentioned that you are involved in decolonizing philanthropy. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, I would love to do that. Um, First of all, I wanted to just jump back to talk about the Friday cohort for a second, because it was a collective decision for us to keep doing it on Fridays. And that was heartening to me, because when the question came up, Could we, like, is this, is there a better day to do this now that people have things that they might want to be doing? The whole group, it was unanimous, is like, nope, we're going to keep it here. So I want, I didn't want to take credit for that. That was the group that decided that. And it um, inspires me to be doing the journey with all of those incredible people. Um, So, yeah, this is very interesting, this subject of decolonization, because I think it draws a blank for people. It certainly drew a blank for me when I really heard somebody earnestly talking about it. Um, uh, Akila S. Richards is uh, really well known in the unschooling world. And um, she was introduced me, to me by a dear friend, Mercer Carlin. And I understand, like racism is, yes, there's many, many, many layers to understand about racism. And yes, what you said about understanding history, I think is essential. And that's a whole conversation in our country that's uh, been used in a particular political way. (laughs) Um, So, but this thing about decolonizing, like what does that even mean? And I feel like I've just scratched the surface of it. So I'll just share what I've discovered, knowing that I've just scratched the surface is just this really kind of structured tight way of how we do things, even just, uh, um, I remember when I was in the literacy center, uh, there would be times where I would sit in my office and I would hear this joy happening outside. And here were people that were in circumstances that were really pretty, pretty, not necessarily desperate, but very difficult situations. But there was this innate joy that was always present Um, And I sit there and I would feel like a kind of a contracted white person. So it's like, what happened? Like what happened there that I, that my ancestry just over time became more and more uh, maybe bought into rules that maybe injured us as well. So if you look at it, just basic to call colonization, it was, you know, Europeans coming over and, in imposing uh, uh, our thoughts about food. What, what do you, like you have, you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner and indigenous people didn't do that. They, they ate based on what their bodies said. So, mm-hmm. so that's just like kind of, it kind of is woven in almost like an, in you just breathe it in, you don't question it. So when it comes to decolonizing philanthropy, there's a certain way philanthropy works where here's people that have money and Here's people that are doing things in the world and they need that they need that money. That's how the system works, right? So then you these people that that are doing work in the world and they need money, they have to kind of prove themselves to the people that do have money. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be accountable for the money that we're going to give you. So there's this certain it's always this hierarchical system. Mm-hmm. And it's not based in relationship. And it's not based in equality. So the conversations I'm having with certain people, really brilliant people, 
um, is how do we unravel that and do it a completely different way where it's just like, first we get to know you as a human and you get to know us as a human. What, what do you love? What are your heartbreaks? What do you care about? And mm-hmm. then let's have a conversation how we could help each other. Because also there's this, this thing that, um, this whole idea of wealth too, that wealth means you're better than, and wealth is defined as it's attached to money. But there's all sorts of different kinds of wealth out there that's overlooked because it's not in the description or in the box of money. Mm. So that's a lot. That's a lot. I would say that's, that's really a lot what you're talking about. But as you're talking about this, I love being in relationship that I think it's so important that we're in relationship. We get to know one another, but here's the thing I think for uh, philanthropists, there's also a need that they want to give up their power because you just said it so beautifully when you said we give you this money, but really you've got to dance for us Mm -hmm. in order to get this money. So it goes back to, again, the people in power, who are lording their power over us, so to speak. And you still have to do what I say. And that's what colonization is all about. You know, I'm going to come in, I'm going to swoop in and I'm going to use that savior complex again. I'm going to swoop in because a lot of people, again, gave a lot of money last year. I'm going to come in and swoop in, but I still am the one who has power in this particular situation. And I'm not saying folks shouldn't be accountable for what they do with money, but it's just like if a family member gives you money or let you borrow money and then they want to tell you what to do with the money when you get it. Or they want to say, wait, wait a minute, uh, you owe me money. So, or I gave you money to do X, Y, and Z. Why are you buying yourself this over here? Is that something you need? Well, what you're saying is that you've taken that to philanthropy and taking a look at those things. And so if people really want to decolonize, it's a matter of saying, am I willing to give up my power? Am I willing to give up my privilege? Am I willing to share my wealth? I'm not saying don't be wealthy, but am I willing to share it in such a way where I'm still, uh, where I'm not acting as if I am still the owner of people. I'm not enslaving those people in order for them to get what I have to offer. So I think we have to ask the hard questions about, are we willing to give up those things? I think we have to ask, what do I fear if I give up those things? Mm -hmm. So I would love in your conversations with people where you're teaching them about building relationships is also teaching them to let go. And that's a part of a spiritual awakening in and of itself, to not hold on to the material things, but to say, how am I connecting with this person on a deeper soul level? And I think that that's what you do uh, in the work. Well, I'll tell you, Hillary, we are absolutely uh, running out of time here. And I want to do a couple of things before we, we have to end. One, um, you have the Friday cohort. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to become a part of that, just so that they can have a group where they feel connected and could learn more about how to become uh, awakened, to become more conscious around racism, and to begin to unravel it a bit? Shoot, boy, that's a great question. And uh, we would love to have more people join us at the Friday cohort. Um, is it possible that people can connect to me through you for right now? Yes, I do they, not, they we don't have a website. Cert- We're not fancy. Well, they can certainly do that. But I do know that you have a mailing list that you, you send out. So if, if people want to know more about your Friday cohort, they can go to sacredintelligence.com and they can actually send me a message and I will make sure that Hillary Larson gets your, your message. The other thing is before we close, Hillary, I always like to ask my guests to leave uh, a, just a blessing. If you have a final thought and then a blessing that you want to share with people, I'd appreciate if you would do that. Mm. Yeah, I, I would like to 
share this one thing that I was, I learned from a friend of mine who, who wasn't feeling one day, uh, well, one day, and he went into the emergency room and he turned out he had cancer throughout his body and he died a month later. And while he was in the dying process and he kept getting more and more shocking news, I asked him how he was dealing with that. And he said, well, I watch my inner posture. And there was this deep teaching in that for me in this blessing that I'm, I'm offering all of you is just this, this, uh, this ability to look inward. What is my posture when it comes to this subject of racism in me? Do I cower? Do I move away? Am I aggressive? Uh, is, do, is there a way I collapse? <clears throat> you can feel that in your body to just be, ah, notice that. And when the posture is straight up, when it's just open, there's just this great capacity and possibility for love and understanding. Hmm. Thank you so much for Hillary. We're going to, for that, that uh, insight. So we're going to take that blessing with us and we are going to do whatever we can to eradicate racism. Thank you so much for joining me and my guest today, Hillary Larson. Stay tuned for the Conscious Consultant Hour with Sam Leibowitz, where he helps you to walk through life with the greatest of ease and joy. Be well, be safe, be encouraged. Until next time, bye for now. run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, live, 8 p.m. Eastern, on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. informed about menopause and how it impacts on your life hi i'm pat duckworth women's health strategist and host of the hot women rock radio show empowering women leaders at menopause join me every thursday at 10 a.m eastern time 3 p.m uk time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc.